You're listening to a Penal Reform International podcast. Hello and welcome to Penal Reform International's Global Prison Trends podcast. My name's Paddy O'Connell and this podcast will describe some of the key global trends in the use and practice of imprisonment and identify some of the most pressing challenges facing states that wish to practice imprisonment in accordance with international norms and standards. Later on, we'll have a fascinating look at the different ways in which technology is being used in prisons, as well as a discussion about innovation in prison architecture. And you can read lots more on all of this by downloading Global Prison Trends 2015, the full report. It's available from the Penal Reform International website, penalreform.org. First, let's meet the boss. She's PRI's Executive Director, Alison Hanna. Just reading your background, it was 2007 you joined PRI. Before that, you were a practising lawyer, specialising in legal aid cases in the UK and a community lawyer for a Citizens Advice Bureau and Director of Legal Action Group, a UK charity that promotes access to justice through legal aid. Thank you very much for coming. There aren't many global trends, but there are some trends around the world. That seems to be a good way to start. So let's start with one or two that I've read in your report. Prisons are often getting bigger. They're not often getting smaller. Yes, that's right. And they're also getting more prisoners as well. So that over the last 10 to 15 years, the trend has been upwards and it's more than the increase in the world population. So the prison population globally is now 10.2 million roughly and that is bigger than it was a few years ago. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it means that we can say prison are getting bigger and more people are becoming prisoners in the countries around the world. Yes. Are we becoming more criminal? No, we're not becoming more criminal. In fact, on the whole, the, at the moment, the crime rate, for example, in Europe and in America is dropping, but the prison population is not necessarily dropping with it. Because, I mean, almost everyone will agree on the need for rehabilitation. But is this another trend? Rehabilitation is a hard nut to crack wherever you are in the world. I think that is true. I think it's very difficult uh, for somebody to say that deterrence works. I mean, a lot of people support imprisonment because they say that it has a deterrent effect. But in fact, the evidence doesn't support that. And very often, if you've been to prison, you're likely to go back to prison. And that's not surprising when you think that if you go to prison, if you don't get anything that deals with the causes of crime, then you will be released and go straight back to the same situation that made you commit an offence in the first place. Now, obviously, I want to read your report, and we all do, Alison, but here's a couple of shorthands to it. More people are going to prisons more people are going to bigger prisons, more people are finding it hard never to return to prison having been in, and there's more use of technology in prisons. This is all true more around the world, not everywhere, but increasingly. Yes, I mean, there's a big difference from region to region, yes. but those are definitely signs of where we're going. One thing that I think you've done that we must call attention to to listeners is a special feature on drug policies. Why have we started a special chapter on drug policies? Mainly because it's the drug crimes that are pushing up the prison numbers. And that's another trend. It's, it's another trend and it's another trend that varies region from region. But in some regions, yes, it is in some Asian countries and in some Latin American countries. The prison population is very high because there are a number of people who have been convicted of drug offences. And very often the drug offences are not the most serious offences. They're not necessarily to do with drug trafficking. They're often to do with 
drug use. Also, um, in terms of the drug crimes and the rise in prison populations, there's been a disproportionate rise in women in prison. Uh, again, varying in which region we're talking about, but because women are often used as drug mules and they're often the people that are picked off by the police for small offences which are easily tracked down and can be easily dealt with. Now, during our podcast, we're going to look at technology, we're going to look at architecture. You've worked in PRI since 2007. Here you are with a new report. What surprised you the most when you read it? I think the development of interest uh, in many different countries about privatising prisons and privatising prison services. I think that does seem to be increasing in many different countries of the world and not simply rich countries of the world. Uh, And Alison, all listeners to our podcast will need to know this important piece of policy going around the world, which is the UN, its new Millennium Goals. And they're going to have in there something addressing peace and security and cohesion of societies. Yes, that's right. In the first set of Millennium Development Goals, it was very much focused on poverty reduction. But of course, people want to live in a safe and secure society. So the questions of having justice and having fair trials and having systems that you have confidence in was overlooked in those set of development goals. So now in the new development goals, which will be agreed later this year, there is a specific goal which calls for safe and secure societies that uh, adopt principles of inclusiveness, rule of law and good governance. And that's because people need to feel that the right people are going to go through the criminal justice system and not the wrong people. It's about inequalities and arbitrary uh, systems of justice. So there's a very strong link between crime and inequality and there's also a strong link between poverty and crime so that the countries with low levels of development often have the highest homicide levels. That is a warning for us all to get briefed, I think, on what's happening with global development goals. But for now, Alison Hanna, thank you very much. My name's Paddy O'Connell and you're listening to the Global Prison Trends podcast. Well, a key case study for PRI's attention in the Global Prison Trends 2015 report is, guess where, the United States. Earlier I spoke to Brian Stevenson. He's the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. That's a non-profit organisation which provides legal representation to defendants and prisoners who say they're denied fair and just treatment in the legal system. I began by asking Brian what mark out of 10 would he give the state of equal justice in the US? Oh, I think it's still quite bad in the United States. I I would give us a three. Uh, We've made some progress, but this is a country that is still struggling to recover from decades of uh, racial inequality. There's a legacy of racial injustice that we've done a very poor job of confronting and talking about. And as a result of it, we have too many places in this country where people are presumed dangerous or guilty uh, based on their race or ethnicity. Uh, The Bureau of Justice now reports that one in three Uh, Black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison. And let's look at some uh, trends in the US. The prison population, what's happening to that? Our country has been ravaged by mass incarceration. Um, uh, The prison population in America was fairly stable throughout most of the 20th century. But in the 1970s, we began an era uh, of, uh, of politics that I think was defined by the politics of fear and anger. Our prison population uh, went from about 300,000 in 1972 uh, to the current uh, 2.3 million uh, that we now have in prison. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. 
uh, 5% of the world's population live here, 25% of the world's imprisoned are here. We've got some 6 million people on probation or parole. Uh, there are 68 million Americans with criminal arrest, which will compromise their ability to get a job. We've never had a time in America's history where imprisonment and incarceration and the criminal justice system has controlled more lives. Not only has mass incarceration uh, shaped the lives of adults, it's been uh, especially burdensome on vulnerable populations, including children. Uh, we've now got some 250,000 uh, people serving long prison sentences for crimes they were accused of when they were very young children, some 12, 13, 14 years of age. Uh, the United States is the only country in the world that imposes death in prison sentences on kids. We've got some 3,000 children serving life imprisonment without parole sentences, again, some as young as 13 years of age. And, Brian, one thing we know is that the American voter wants to get tough on crime. Now, in New York recently, they, they passed a record for the number of days without a murder, and we can see an argument that tough on crime reduces crime. And whether you agree with that or not. Can you tell us if the world is going the American way? Around the world are more systems thinking, let's try and be tougher with incarceration to see if we can crack crime? Well, I, I guess I, I have to start by saying I actually don't think it's true that people want to be tough on crime. I think we've been told that we should be very afraid and that we should be very angry. And when you're afraid and you're angry, uh, you will accept outcomes that you even believe are not fair or just. But if we say we won't have that full argument here, can you tell us about the other trends in other countries? Do other, are, are there lots of different systems, or do you see in your work more people going the US route? I have seen absolutely a trend globally of replicating many of the dynamics that we have in the United States, with the prison population going up. But I do have to press this point about what has happened. The people who've been sent to the prison in the United States are largely people who are there for drug possession. They're there for uh, nonviolent offenses. They're not there for the things uh, that people intuitively want to be tough about. Uh, you're talking about people who are writing bad checks and simple possession of marijuana. And so, it, yes, if you treat uh, drug dependency as a crime problem rather than a health problem, you're going to see a massive increase in the prison population. Brian, we know that in many countries the people who are poor often struggle to get decent legal representation and they're more likely to end up on remand. So if I come into court in a suit versus if I come into court in my prison uniform because I may be on remand, am I likely to be treated differently if I'm already attending court dressed as a criminal? Well, I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, you know, people are very sensitive to the pictures that are presented for them. And if somebody is introduced to you as a robber, or a murderer or a thief, then we're going to have a hard time seeing them as anything other. If they're introduced to you as a banker or a school teacher or a lawyer or a professional, whatever the additional criminal charge is, is going to be uh, harder to establish than when you don't have that, uh, that advantage. And so, yes, I do think uh, in many parts of the, of the world, uh, we treat people based on their economic status. In America, I think we have a system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes, the views of Brian Stevenson. Here on Penal Reform International's 
Global Prison Trends podcast. Still to come, we'll hear from the report's main author, Rob Allen. He's with me. He's been listening to Brian and on some fascinating ways in which technology is being used in prisons around the world. You may like some, you may not. But first, let's cross to New York City to speak to Dr. Mareka Lopez. Dr. Lopez is a senior corrections analyst and planner for CGL Richie Green Associates. That's a criminal justice planning and design firm based in New York. She's got a particular interest in how prison architecture can be a catalyst for positive outcomes, such as individual rehabilitation. Dr Lopez, many thanks for joining us. We heard from Alison earlier about the trend for building bigger and bigger prisons. Can you flesh that out for us? Is that something that's happening a lot? It's happening a lot because from a financial perspective and using the perspective of economies of scales, it makes sense. This is a trend because a lot of facilities are overcrowded. What kind of buildings are going up and what are their common features in the new buildings? So because uh, often governments think that they is probably the, the only shot that they have at building, they are asking us to build mega supermax prisons that uh, have thousands of beds. Yes, and um, just as we look at the global prison trends, we know in some places prisons are as large as 10,000 beds. We've also had uh, building programs in Russia and Spain of 2000 and upwards. So can you tell us concrete examples of trends you've seen in prison building around the world, Mareka? Uh, there are uh, features of uh, prisons that like the creation of the adequate number and variety of uh, spaces of not limiting like the movement of the image just to the, to the housing unit, but creating like a campus-like environment, seeing these prisons like a, a small gated communities and allowing freedom of movement and uh, that emulates life in the outside. So the inmates uh, having like a daily routine that imitates uh, life in the outside outside, leaving the unit like uh, in the morning either to attend school or to go like, to, to do some kind of vocational training or prison industries. So things that really allows them to experience the change of seasons, the change of uh, the day, abundant uh, access to, to fresh air, to daylight, to outdoor spaces. That's the common features that any good prison uh, should have. Can you Give us, from your great experience now, an example of how a building can lead to more chance of rehabilitation. Can you give us an example of the built environment that would assist rehabilitation efforts? The first premise is that uh, the purpose of incarceration is just the privation of liberty and the rest of the rights should remain. So when you accept that people that are inside the facility, the only right that they have lost is the freedom of movement, then all the amenities should remain in the sense that these people should have access to as many open spaces as uh, they can and the environment prison environment should imitate as much as possible life in the outside because to me it's not about maximum security single cells no the majority of the profile of the population they fall within the category of medium security so for medium security the type of cell that you need the type of construction is softer than for maximum security so you could have a gym, you could have a kitchen you could give me access to, a library, a TV, but then you could perhaps withdraw my privileges to use those if my behaviour didn't warrant it, but I should build them in, should I, when I build a new prison? 
Exactly, and that's a, a way of motivating people because just locking down people and just uh, throwing the key does not motivate them. At the contrary, it makes them be mad with the system. However, if you give them opportunities, if you give them opportunities for growth to acquire those skills that they didn't have when they were in society, what you provide the, 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 the type of space, not just uh, the, the variety of space, so that the different treatment activities and programs don't have to compete against each other. Are you in any doubt that prison architecture around the world makes things worse more often than it makes things better? It does when you don't work with people that understand the operations of those facilities and that understand what's the role that the, the prison architecture is supposed to serve. So when you hire people, or architects that can build a school, like they can build a hospital and they can build any other kind of building, then it might be a cheap fix, but in the long term is it, more costly. So it's all about understanding the dynamics, understanding the management, but also challenging the governments to work together so that they just don't address prisons in silo, but they are all involved, that the prison should be seen as the last resort. Have you found uh, examples of best practice somewhere in the world that you would pass on to the community that is interested in the same work as you, the criminal justice community? Have you found a new prison that we should all go and study? I found that with the Canadians, the Canadian approach to addressing uh, juvenile incarceration is great. They are like closing facilities of 100 or 200 beds in favour of smaller facilities and no longer, no bigger than 48 beds. For the rest of the world, that's a luxury. In Canada, because they have the means, they can afford doing that. More and more, there are purpose-built facilities for the female offenders. So they were thought and built and designed and organized having the female population in mind. Not like in the past, because uh, the female population has been always like an afterthought. And then in terms of, of the adult population, uh, I will say like cap the capacity of the facility at 500. But this is something that the United States, for instance, cannot afford right now because of the rates of incarceration. Thank you very much indeed for passing on your specialisms. Uh, Dr. Mareka Lopez, a criminal justice planner, looking at how prison design could influence rehabilitation. We're nearing the end of this Global Prison Trends podcast for Penal Reform International. Our final guest is Rob Allen, who's here in the studio. Hello, Rob. Hello. Rob works on prison reform in the UK and internationally. From 2005 to 2010, he was director of the International Centre for Prison Studies at King's College London, and that undertakes research on imprisonment and assisting prison systems to comply with international standards. Tell us about technology. Technology is increasing. That's another trend. Is that the case? How would you flesh that out for us? Well, I was in a prison yesterday in the UK where they told me there were 376 cameras. This was a prison for about a 1,000 people, so a camera for every three prisoners. 20 or 30 years ago, that would have been very unusual. Mm. So in terms of security, uh, closed-circuit TV cameras, perimeter security is, is, is secured uh, not by people. Uh, in, in many countries now, there aren't people with weapons standing on watchtowers. There are technical solutions to ensuring that people don't mm. scale the perimeter wall. And that's good in many ways because it allows staff to concentrate on working with prisoners rather than just patrolling. One of the areas that there's been a lot of promise with is 
electronic monitoring of offenders. Because that could keep people out of prison, as Mareka was suggesting we need to do. Exactly, and 10 or 15 years ago, the UK uh, Home Secretary David Blunkett talked about prisons without bars. You have these days the kind of tracking which means that you can be followed and monitored wherever you go. If you go somewhere where you are not supposed to, if you visit uh, uh, the victim of a crime, if you leave an area that you're not supposed to leave, uh, the authorities will be alerted and they can come and arrest you and they know where you are. And reading your report, uh, the use of such monitoring plus GPS is welcomed, but there's a warning that we want the personal data which shows my movements to be controlled. We don't want capture of data of people who've only been given a tag and haven't been said we must trace where they go. There's an issue about that, and there's also an issue about whether this is replacing the kind of face-to-face -face work that needs to be done if you're really going to try and change people's right. lives. So if you bang someone up in a cell with the use of technology to monitor them and more for them to watch on the television, you're not actually spending human rehabilitation time with them. You're not. Where I think there is huge scope still is in relation to people who are subject to pre-trial detention. They're waiting for their trial. And in many of the countries, prison systems a half or even three quarters of prisoners are actually not serving sentences, they are detained. Now many of them are detained because people are worried that they are going to run, run away, away and not yeah. turn up. One of the areas that technology clearly has an important role to play is in providing prisoners with opportunities for education. We all are on our tablets and machines all the time. People go to prison often, historically, haven't had any access to that. And there is a certain amount of digital exclusion when people come out, particularly serving long sentences. They will not have had the opportunity to use all of this stuff. Controlled properly, with proper access to the right kinds of websites and so on, there's no reason why prisoners shouldn't have much more in the way of access to new technology. And in some prison systems, very imaginative use has been made of internet-based technology to enable families to keep in touch with prisoners, for example, in big countries like Russia or India, uh, Skype calls for foreign national prisoners uh, in many countries. And these have revolutionised the way people can keep in touch and learn. Telemedicine, which is used uh, in some countries, is also uh, got possibilities. The difficulty is ensuring that the technology works, that the quality of the product is good, mm. and that you don't end up leaving prisoners stuck in a cell with just a computer for company. Many prison systems are understandably risk-averse about allowing anything inside prisons which might end up having some sort of adverse consequence. But as Marika said earlier, uh, there are many people in prisons who are not necessarily of the highest risk. The answer here is to have a range of prisons with a range of different levels of regime and security and privileges and incentives so that those who are not going to uh, cause problems are able to have a period in, of imprisonment which is as normal as possible. And normalisation is one of the values, certainly in European prisons, that we try to uphold. And I think the digital challenge is perhaps the most important one. And I wonder if one of the big trends is that technology seems to offer a way to control a thousand inmates. You've got electric doors, you've got cameras, you've got digital release of many gates. Suddenly you could be in a position where one or two humans can control the movement of many hundreds of people. 
Such a prison was experimented with in the Netherlands a few years ago. So the prisoners themselves all wore electronic tags and were tracked within the prison, uh, fingerprint technology and, and so on. The Dutch didn't pursue that. They felt that it was important to have staff uh, interacting with prisoners and that rehabilitation could not be done simply in that kind of way. It's attempting to meet a number of objectives. Mm. Control, yes, but rehabilitation too. And you can't do that just with technology. You need human beings. Finally, I wonder if I can ask if that's actually what you found. Balance is a key word in everything we're talking about today. And in the middle are the people listening to this podcast who have to take these decisions with the limited resources they have. Balance on technology, yes, Rob, but balance on everything. I think that's right. And when we talk about prisons, we must remember we are talking about a vast range of different kinds of establishments. We're talking about boot camps, we're talking about open prisons, we're talking about big local prisons with many thousands of people in and out each day or week. We're talking about maximum security establishments where people are going to spend their whole lives there. And so having one set of norms or rules or expectations for these huge variety of establishments is one of the challenges that faces prison administrators and those of us who are trying to make it better. Rob, thank you very much indeed. Rob Allen. Well, listening all the way through has been Alison Hannah and hopefully you at the other end of this podcast. Alison, we're going to give you one chance to say an end thought, the end of show big thought that we might have missed or that you would like to pull out from what we've already heard. Well, I think I'd like to go back to, in fact, the contributions made by both Mareka and Rob, uh, because both of them uh, stressed the importance of human relationships and dynamic relationships uh, inside prison over the technology or the architecture. And the interesting development over the last few years has been the study of desistance, which shows why people change or what are the factors that made them change their lives around. And what's very interesting and actually very encouraging is that very often what makes people change is because they have a relationship that's meaningful to them, mm. they have support from human beings that help them to find jobs and find homes and to help them to re-enter society and become a, a law-abiding citizen. We need another podcast. I'm sure. Alison, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and, and that's where we leave it. Thank you to Alison, all our guests, and of course to you for listening to this Global Prison Trends podcast. We would love to know what you thought. Did you make it to the end? Would you like to hear more of them? Contact us at penalreform.org where you can read lots more information on the themes discussed in this podcast by downloading the Global Prison Trends 2015 report. Once again, the Penal Reform International website, penalreform.org. But from all of us, thank you very much indeed for listening and goodbye. Penal Reform International, promoting fair and effective justice worldwide and through your headphones.